wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to John chapter 18. If you're making notes, which I certainly encourage you to do so, I've called this message, In My Place, Condemned He Stood. By way of background, this is the day that that Jesus would die. This is the day of his crucifixion. He's already stood before Caiaphas, the high priest's father-in-law. If you've ever read that and you think, hang on, he, he seems like he's before the high priest twice. How does that work? Because Caiaphas is the high priest. It's because his father-in-law, they still call him the high priest because really behind the scenes he's like the Wizard of Oz. He still pulls all the strings. So Jesus stands before the father-in-law first and then he eventually gets to Caiaphas, the real high priest. And now Jesus stands before Pilate, the governor of Judea. And I'm going to read from verse 28 through to the end of verse 16 of chapter 19. And what an incredible scene this is. Let's read it together. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show that by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. 
everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand at this scene in Scripture, I feel so inadequate. Lord, I wish there was someone else in this moment way more gifted than I to preach this message to these people that I love. But Lord, would you work through my weakness and would you dazzle us with your affection? Lord, as we walk with you through this scene, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold the glories of Calvary and the glories of our glorious Saviour. Help us, Lord, interact with this as if for the first time and open our eyes to it. In Jesus' name, Amen. There are certain texts in the Bible that are so packed with depth and so packed with truth and so packed with glories that you just know when you come to them as a preacher, however long you've got, you're barely going to be able to scratch the surface of it because it's so deep and it's so multi-layered in the way it's set up before the Lord and deliberately by the Lord. And yet without question, this is one of those texts. As we stand before this text, this is multi-layered in the way it shares truth and, and glories and depth. And yet I nonetheless this morning have high hopes for us. They have high hopes for us as a church because God is faithful and God is kind and this scripture scream some incredible things for us. See, if you're a Christian here today, it is my hope for you that as we consider this text in, verse, in chapter 18 and chapter 19, that you would be freshly aware of and freshly convinced of and convicted of the Lord's incredible, personal, particular and passionate love for you. Because that's what's on view here. And the truth is, I think all too many Christians are in some way not aware of that. You can even preach it every week, and yet there are still individuals, given the nature of our growing congregation, that will be not certain of God's love for them. They will always hear certain things and step to the side of the rest of the church and think, well, that's for them, but not for me. They will begin to imagine that God is just tolerating them. And the truth is, for individuals like that, they actually become suspicious of God, wondering why they're going through different things at different times, wondering if God really loves them at all. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe I've just told your story. But it's my hope that as we interact with this text, that you would be freshly aware of God's personal and particular and passionate love for you as an individual not just as a church, but for you, as you discover that in your place, personally, condemned he stood for you. If you're here though and you're not a Christian, then thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being a part of us this morning. and We're honoured to have you without any doubt in our midst. And it's my hope for you that as we go through this text, you would be freshly convicted and convinced of God's love for you as well. That as we examine what the Saviour has done for you, while I'm even preaching, you may be convicted of your sin, may flee to the cross, may put your faith in Jesus, and that you may then experience for yourself as a believer his personal and particular and passionate love for you. So I have high hopes. This message is not littered with numerous illustrations. I'm not sure there's any illustrations in it. This scene doesn't need illustrating. But what we do need to understand as we go through it, and in a desire to be faithful to this text, it's all about the characters. There are five characters that John deliberately puts in this picture 
and then talks us around to help us ultimately see the Saviour's personal, passionate and particular love for you. And so here's the first character, number one, point one, Pontius Pilate. Let us look at Pontius Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He is a political animal and he had married into the Caesar dynasty. He had married Caesar Augustus' granddaughter and so he was the obvious choice to become the governor of Judea, both in his political realm but also because of who he had married. And he was put into this role and by a man called Sejanus, who was the commander of the Praetorian Guards. He was the obvious choice to be the governor of Judea. But he was a wrong choice. Because he, in all reality, had some serious and profound character defects. He was a very weak man. He was a very fearful man. And he was a very self-protecting man. And all these things were being fanned into flame here in this scene. As he prized to this moment, Sejanus, the man who had given Pilate this job, had been convicted of conspiracy to overthrow Caesar Tiberius. So they'd had him executed. And now Caesar Tiberius is on the lookout for everybody that he put in place, aware that they may also try to overthrow me. He's already a weak man. That is being fanned into flame prior to Jesus even arriving Because he's riddled with fear for his life and his position, thinking that Caesar Tiberius will indeed come after him, just like he did Sejanus. Well, that's fanned into flame even more than when Jesus appears on the scene. Jesus is claiming, quite clearly, in chapter 19, verse 7, to be the Son of God. That was problematic for Pilate and the last thing he wanted in this moment. He's scared for his job. He's scared for his life. So he wants to serve Caesar well. But now he's standing in front of this guy who's claiming to be God. And then Pilate's wife has this crazy dream in the middle of the night and runs to her husband and says, he is the son of God. I met God in this dream. Don't do anything to him. We need to avoid him. Just let him go. So this weak, fearful man stands before Jesus and is in fear. That is then just echoed even more within chapter 19, verse 12. He says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's because of the dream. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You understand the background of that? He's so afraid for his life. He's aware, I want to let this guy go. But I can't, because Caesar's going to try and kill me. And they're now accusing me, and this could get back to them. So this weak and fearful man is the one that is interviewing Jesus in this moment. Here's the staggering thing in this scene. And here's the thing that I think makes it go from black and white to colour. Pontius Pilate, in the whole of this scene, represents God himself. In divine mystery, God is using Pilate in this very moment to represent him to represent him as the judge and to represent him as the father. So you look with me at chapter 19, verse 11. Listen to these words. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Exactly. The reality is Pilate has been given all of his authority in this moment, in this specific moment of massive redemptive history. A pinnacle moment. And Jesus is saying to him, all of your authority to either release me or crucify me has been given by God. He represents God in this moment. And as the scene begins to then play out, Albeit unwittingly for Pilate, he is indeed representing God. And when you see it, you see it time and time and time again. So in chapter 18, verse 35, we see Pilate echoing the scene of Genesis chapter 3. It's pretty cool, pretty crazy. And it's right here in your Bibles. See, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They have been instructed by God, have they not, to do what they like, to enjoy themselves, to eat of anything, but not that tree. Well, Satan comes in to deceive them. Their hearts are deceived and so they eat of the fruit of that tree. And at that point, God comes after them in the garden. He finds them and he talks to them and this is what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 verse 13. He says, What 
have you done? Chapter 18, verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? There is a reenactment in this moment going towards Genesis chapter 3. The first Adam had failed and God then pursues him and stands before him and asks him, what have you done? And he finds him guilty and he removes him from the garden. Now we have Pilate with Jesus standing in front of him and he says, what have you done? What Jesus communicates to him and then three times in verse 38 In verse 4 of chapter 19 and verse 6 of chapter 19, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. So different to Genesis chapter 3. As I stand before this man, I find no guilt in him whatsoever. Do you hear the father in that? This is so important, which we'll understand later on. It is the father's verdict through Pontius Pilate that I've assessed him. I know him. I've inquired, what have you done? And three times then I declare over all of Israel and all of mankind, this man is guiltless. I find no guilt in him. And then that declaration begins to die away because then in chapter 19, verse 13, we read the following. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. The whole scene is set. Do you see it? What have you done? I declare you not guilty. But then we see Pilate unwittingly representing God the Father, God the Judge, sitting on the judgment seat in this redemptive history moment. And he declares him guilty go to be crucified. Do you hear the Father through him? This is my son. I declare him guiltless. But for the nations, son, you're guilty. Even in that moment, he was becoming sin for us and the Father was rending judgment through Pilate, having given Pilate the authority to either let him go or crucify him. God the Father, in divine mystery, is working through Pilate to see his son crucified in your place. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. That is deep. And so as Jesus stands before Pilate in this moment, in all reality, he stands there before the Father. He stands there before God who is rending a judgment on his son of not guilty but because of the nations. Guilty. Go and be their sin bearer. Go and be crucified. But he's not the only one in the scene. The second set are the religious leaders, number two. And they also represent someone. Everybody in this scene represents someone. And the religious leaders, the chief priests, they represent the failure of the Jewish religion and nation. See, what should be obvious to us by now, having gone through the Gospel of John for a long time, is they are rejecting Jesus as a nation, aren't they? They've done it all along. But now this is the pinnacle of that. It is the conclusion of that and the crescendo of that. And so in chapter, chapter 18, verse 35, he, the actual Pilate talking to Jesus says, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. He, he didn't even want anything to do with Jesus particularly. But he's saying, I've got to deal with it now because your own nation has handed him to me. His own nation. In John chapter 1, verse 11, John has already told us that he came to his own and yet his own people did not receive him. We saw it prophesied all the way through the Old Testament that Jesus would come for his own, for his own, for his own, but they would reject him. And that is exactly what happens here. His own people reject him. And notice just how far their rejection has come. Because it's grieving. The Jews didn't crucify people. They stoned people. So when we get to Stephen later on in Acts, which we'll be studying in a few months, 
We don't see them going to the, going to the uh, authorities and saying, crucify him. They just stone him. That's what the Jews do. That was their law. That was their understanding. They would catch big stones and they would stone people to death. So why are they so keen for Jesus to be crucified? Well, they are so keen for Jesus to be crucified because in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, it says, For cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. They wanted this one who is claiming to be God to be cursed by God. That's why they want him hanging on a tree. That is not just a slight rejection of, yeah, he's really not my preference. This is an angry response to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Get him out of here and crucify him. We aren't just going to stone him, kill him. We want him to become accursed by God. They wanted to squash Christianity at any hint of it. And they wanted to squash this man. They wanted him to be a curse for us. But that's not all. It wasn't just the rejection of Jesus that we see them doing here. Profoundly, we see their rejection of God himself too. So look at chapter 19, verse 15, and understand the Old Testament context. This is why you have to read the Old Testament and understand it. For they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Here's the key thing. And the chief priests answered, The chief priest, the one who would represent the whole nation, who would speak on behalf of the whole of the Jewish nation. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That is steeped with history. The chief priest representative of the Jewish nation don't just reject Christ. The chief priest reject God in this moment as their king. See, all the way through the Old Testament, God has always been the king of the Jews. He's always been the king of Israel and over Israel. Through the patriarchs, through the judges, through the kings like David and Solomon, there's always understanding that throughout the whole nation we have a king and it's God. They've been rejecting that for years. And now at the pinnacle of that, they stand before Pilate and they don't say, we have no other king but Yahweh. We have no other king but Caesar. This is an utter rejection of God. Bruce Mill, in his wonderful commentary in John, says this. He says, This retort is a fateful utterance on the part of these official representatives of the Jewish theocracy. For it represents nothing less than the rending of their covenant with God. Nothing was more fundamental to that covenant than the kingship of God over the world in general, but in a special way over his chosen people, Israel. It was a conviction that no invading power could weaken or eradicate, whether Persian, Ptolemaic, Syrian, Greek or Roman. Isaiah 26 says, O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have rolled over us, but your name alone do we honour. Secure in that conviction, they waited patiently through the long centuries for the appearing of his Messiah to vindicate Israel's faith and establish his rule visibly and powerfully over the world. But now, in a terrible moment of apostasy, the sacred tryst is violated and the holy place is desecrated as the centuries of anticipation are cast aside. We have no king but Caesar. It is nothing less than the abandonment of the messianic hope of Israel. And from that moment, the church comes to replace Israel at the centre of God's purpose in history and will continue to do so until the end. In just a few hours' time, Jesus would be hanging on the cross and as he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished, the curtain would be ripped in two. That was good timing. The curtain would be ripped in two by very nature. And ever since that point, he made it clear that whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, whatever age, whatever background, whatever nationality, through faith in my son, you can have access to the Holy of Holies. The church was born. And I'm grateful for that, eh? I'm grateful that it was to the nations. From every tribe and language and nation, a third race would be born through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
That happened as that curtain was torn in two. The Jews were always meant to make that, but they never did. And here we see them rejecting God. Not only rejecting Jesus. He's not the Messiah, crucify him. But rejecting Jesus, as rejecting God too. We have no other king but Caesar. It's a sobering moment, isn't it? It's why for me personally, I'm not a Zionist. They rejected him. The promises then were all to the Jewish nation, either fulfilled in Christ or forfeited by them. They broke it. They rejected him. So we see Pontius Pilate as God. We see the Jewish leaders as representatives of the entire nation of the Jews. We also see the Roman soldiers then, number three. And the Roman soldiers, they represent mankind in all of its arrogance and mockery towards God himself. And what a sorrowful and grieving scene this mankind in all its arrogance and mockery towards God is. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 19. For then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. We find in the other Gospels through the writers that this scene is clarified even more. Here he just says, took Jesus out and flogged him and we we just overlook it. The other gospel writers fill that in some more. See, this whip wasn't just any whip. It was something called the vibratio. And by nature, this was a huge whip. It was an incredibly long whip. And then what they would do is insert into this whip small bits of metal and small bits of bone. And so it was designed that as you whipped somebody, you would tie them to a post. And as you whipped them, it wouldn't just scar them, but because the bones and the metal would get stuck in somebody's flesh, as you pulled it back, it would take pieces of flesh off them. That's what was going on in that verse. They were whipping and flogging the Saviour, literally ripping pieces of flesh from his body. Eusebius, the Roman historian, says this about the vibratio. He says, they would be torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, would be exposed to sight. He hasn't even been crucified yet. But the roar that never came has led him to be flogged. The battalion then gather around the Saviour and they put a purple robe on him and they put a crown of thorns on him and they put a scepter in his hand. It's all mocking his kingship for purple was the colour of royalty. The crown of thorns was to represent that you think you're a king. This is hilarious. And the scepter, by nature of having a scepter, it meant that you ruled. So they make a scepter and they put it in his hand and then they start to beat him. He's just had his flesh ripped off through the vibratio and now he sits there as they strike him around the head and they're mocking him throughout saying, King of the Jews, and this is hilarious. If you're really the king, then prophesy. Who just hit you? As they pull the scepter back off his hand and smack him around the head. This was a grieving and sad moment and it was being ripped apart by the Roman soldiers as they represent mankind. And Isaiah 53, prophesying of this moment, he says that he would be marred beyond recognition. Well, that's exactly what happened. And that's why in verse 5, Pilate brings him out before the Jewish nation. He does not want to crucify this man. He brings him out, having made sure that this man is nearly dead in the way they have whipped him and beaten him. And said, so listen, Behold the man. The way it's written in the Greek is, this is pathetic. Why on earth should we crucify him now? He's practically dead. Look at the state of him. I've nearly killed him for you. Just take him. Let him go. And then they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. 
Their vengeance is so deep. The Roman soldiers represent mankind in all of its arrogance and mockery towards God. And I submit to you in all reality, mankind doesn't look much difference today either. People may not walk around with a whip in their hand anymore. But there are many people who are wagging their fist at God. How could you, if you exist, let my mother suffer in the way she did for years? Who do you think you are? You're pathetic in the way you care for us. I'm abandoning you. This is pointless. And who do you think you are giving this Bible? What what is the point in that? And telling us that we, we can't practice homosexuality. Who do you think you are? You made people like that, apparently. So how dare you then say to them they can't exercise that? You are so intolerant. I hate you. My friends are more tolerant than you. And who do you think you are saying that I have to stand and give an account before you? I'm not standing before you and giving an account. You're pathetic. Who made you the God? Who made you the king? I didn't. People are like that. They don't sound like that, but when you press on the buttons, that's what they're saying. How dare God allow people to suffer like that? How dare he be intolerant like that? How dare he? How dare he? How dare he? And then you get people who, in all reality, they're happy to go with that Jesus was a good man. But God? (laughs) What a joke! This is ridiculous! Do you believe this? Dave, I've always thought of you as intelligent. But do you believe that? Can you hear yourself? You believe God made you? And you believe God actually took on flesh? And God actually died? Yeah, and the tooth fairy did as well. Yeah, thanks for playing. They mock. Mankind isn't any different. They just don't have a whip around anymore. But there's a mocking towards the Lord. And there's an anger towards the Lord, which the Roman soldiers in this scene represent. But then comes to the fore, most gloriously, Jesus, who is the fourth and by far and away the most important character in this scene. Jesus, the great lion, the glorious saviour, is in this scene all the way through. And we see him painted for us by the, by the Apostle John in three different ways. It's multi-layered. The first layer is we see Jesus as the Passover lamb. Look at verse 14 of, of chapter 19. So important. It's a critical moment. John writes, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. Why is that important? Why is that important? That is critical. See, for hundreds of years, the Jews have been enjoying the Passover. And this was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was a day, a morning, where they would give themselves to preparing the Passover meal. And the Passover meal as a nation is something they celebrated every year. And it always pointed them back to Exodus chapter 12. The moment when God, in incredible grace and power, brings his nation, brings his people out of the bondage of Egypt. We all know the story, right? God, in his grace, says, I want you to find a a newborn lamb who is spotless and without wrinkle, don't break a bone in their body, but I want you to then kill them, and I want you to put the blood of that lamb around the doorposts, and for everybody then in your home, as the angel of death comes past, I will spare your home. And for hundreds of years then, they had celebrated that that's what exactly what God had done. As that angel of death came round in Exodus chapter 12, the angel of death did go past all of the homes with blood around the doorpost, the blood of the lamb. That angel of death passed over. And so God instructed them as a nation to celebrate this every single year on this day. And so the day of preparation then was a day given over to preparing it, exactly like we thought. And what you find is the Passover wasn't always designed just to point back to Exodus chapter 12. It was also to point forward to the coming Messiah, to the Lamb of God, one who would ultimately die in the place of mankind so that we could, through faith, attach his blood to the doorposts of our life. The Passover was always to point back and it was to point forward. The Passover was pointing 
to this day all along. For this is the day of preparation for the Passover. Four days prior to the Passover, each household, each father of the household, as he represented the household, was to choose a lamb. A spotless lamb, a lamb without wrinkle, a lamb without blemish. And on the morning of the day of preparation, very early in the morning, the father was to bind that lamb's legs together to ensure that that lamb was ready and awaiting his sacrifice or her sacrifice that would take place at midday. Well, my friends, behold the Lamb of God. He has been bound since early morning and he is awaiting his execution and sacrifice at midday. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Ever since John the Baptist had declared it into being, as soon as he saw Jesus as the final prophet, he says, behold the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. Everybody at that moment should have been bowing around him in awe that this is him. But they didn't. Instead, they rejected him. They put him off. In fact, they actually demanded that he be crucified. And so Jesus, on the morning of the day of preparation, really is the Lamb of God for us. He's been bound. And he is awaiting his execution as the true Passover Lamb. Isn't that incredible? The way John is helping us see this is him. This is the one you've been waiting for. We also see Jesus as man's representative, i.e. the second Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, we see mankind in Adam, with Adam representing us as our federal head, rejecting God and falling. And we see ever since that point, that that after that point, he's removed from the garden. But before God removes Adam from the garden, from the very presence of God, he prophesies over the serpent, the evil one. Genesis 3.15, what does he say? He says, one day one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, which is actually referring to this moment. He will crush your head. For centuries they've been wondering, who's it going to be? Who's the serpent crusher going to be? Who's the one that is going to get us back into the garden? Who is the one that is going to help us return to God who made us so we can dwell with God again in perfect unity? Who is it going to be? And one of the things that became clear then as you study Old Testament history is this individual was going to have to be a man couldn't just be a lamb. couldn't just be a lion. He did have to be a man. In the same way that Adam was a man, he had to be a man. In his book, Christ Before the Manger, Ron Rhodes says this. He says, Christ had to become a man so that he could die in man's place. If Christ the Redeemer had been only God, he could not have died, since God by his very nature cannot die. It was only as a man that Christ could represent humanity and die as a man. As God, however, Christ's death had infinite value, sufficient to provide redemption for the sins of all mankind. Clearly then Christ had, been, had to be both God and man to secure man's salvation. Do you understand that? He had to be man in the same way Adam, as a man, represented mankind. We needed a second Adam. We needed another man who was going to come and be sinless and spotless. And it would only be that man who could then stand in the place of humanity and take the death of humanity and the consequence of humanity in our our place. Check out then, chapter 19, verse 5. Pilate, representing God the Father that we've already seen, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. It's incredible. God is speaking through Pilate in this moment. Pilate is unwitting to what is going on. But God, through Pilate, is declaring as loudly as he can, this is him and he is man. He's a man. And I find no guilt in him. The second Adam had arrived. Bruce Milne, says precisely the charges we face at the judgment seat of God 
are the charges that Jesus faced at the judgment seat of Pilate. And the trial of Jesus accordingly assumes a whole new dimension of meaning. Pilate and Caiaphas disappear from view and Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God. He comes to that judgment as our representative to face our charges and to stand in our place. The second Adam had come to face the accusations against the first Adam and all his seed. So there's the Saviour, bound as the Passover lamb, standing before a seated Pilate who represents God. And God is saying through Pilate, Behold the man! I find no guilt in him! But crucify him. Do you see? It's incredible. And we also see Jesus in this scene then as the rightful king. We see him clothed in a purple robe, a crown of thorns on his head, a scepter in his hand. The battalion around him, which would have numbered tens and tens of soldiers, were beating him and laughing at him and spitting on him and mocking him. And yet in God's sovereignty, they were actually proclaiming the truth. He is the king. Hail the king. Pontius Pilate then, not only declares, behold the man, but in chapter 19, verse 14, he said to the Jews, behold your king. He's mocking them in effect. But in reality, through God the Father in this moment, he is prophesying the truth. Behold your king. This is your king. And then he made the soldiers, as we'll see in the weeks to come, write an inscription above Jesus' head as he hangs on the cross, King of the Jews. The Jews, they didn't want it. They were infuriated. Don't put that there. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. As he represents God unwittingly, he's declaring truth after truth after truth. Behold the man, not guilty. Behold your king. This is the king. This is the king of the Jews. Now, a hundred years, hundreds of years then, before this scene, we have another scene in the Bible where Jesus is seen as the king. I want to turn there briefly. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Because I want you to see something. Isaiah is prophesying many, many hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. And in chapter 6, he says this. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, the King, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrives, Isaiah sees a vision of Jesus. Behold, the King. The train of his robe can't even fill the temple. The seraphim around him are having to cover their eyes and their feet because he is so radiant with holiness. And now we have Pilate saying the same thing. Behold your king. Sovereign grace, can you see him? What a difference in seeing between Isaiah and now him. Standing there, in effect as a pulp. Having been whipped and scourged and beaten. He would barely be talking by the end. He would be so disfigured. That's why Isaiah says, he wouldn't even be recognisable. And he says, behold your king. What a change. What a king. But the question still resigns, I think. Why? 
Why would he go from that scene in Isaiah to that scene in the praetorium in this moment? There's only one explanation, I think. He allowed it to take place because of his personal and particular and passionate love for you. He had you in mind. He wanted to save you. He wanted to come after you, whatever the cost. And he did because he personally and particularly and passionately loves you. And I know that because there's one other person in this scene that we're meant to align ourselves with, that we're meant to see ourselves with, and that's Barabbas, number five. See, in Barabbas, we should see a man that we can all relate to because Barabbas, in all honesty, represents us in this scene. Barabbas is a sinful man. John calls him a robber. The other Gospels make it clear that, yeah, true, but he's a bit more than that. Barabbas has been rightly accused of robbery, but also murder and excitement and rebellion. Barabbas is awaiting execution, and he's awaiting execution rightly. For he has indeed done things in his life that he deserves to die for in this period of time. He deserves to be crucified in this period of time because he stands guilty as charged. He stands sinful as charged. Imagine then this scene from his perspective. Imagine it. Picture it with me. Barabbas would have been held in the Tower of Antonia. The Tower of Antonia was just off in the headquarters that we're in right here. As Pontius Pilate is communicating with Jesus, over in the corner was the Tower of Antonia. That's where people would be held. So Barabbas would be able to see things. He'd be able to hear small amounts of it. It would be far enough away that he's not hearing every word. But he'd be able to hear, particularly when the crowd starts to shout, he'd be able to hear exactly what they're saying. And he has just heard the crowd shouting, Barabbas! Barabbas! And then after a gap, he's heard them shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him. And then he sees them coming for him. He makes his way before them. He makes his way to stand before them. And he gets to the doorway and he hears the guards about to come in and he's aware that this is it. I'm about to die. I'm about to be crucified. And as the soldiers come in, they say, Barabbas, you're free. He's taking your place. Imagine what that would have felt like in that moment. You're guilty as charged. You just heard them saying, crucify him, and they've come for you. And you think, this is it, my life is about to end. But then when they arrive, they say, Barabbas, you're free. They're crucifying him and not you. You're free. Imagine it. But then imagine it no more because I want you to realise that is exactly what has happened to you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were lost. You were guilty as charged. None of us in this room are without sin. So we were basically held in the tower, awaiting execution, which we deserved. And yet Jesus comes and he says, you go free. Because for me, as the Passover lamb, as the second Adam, and as the true king, I'm going to take your place. Here in his love, it is scandalous grace. But what incredible love it is. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, here's what I want you to know. God passionately and particularly and personally loves you. And here's how I know. I know because 2,000 years ago, God in all grace sent forth his son for you. He sent forth his son as an expression of love for you. For you were made just like the rest of us, by the Lord, by God. You were made to find your identity and security and joy in him, and yet you, just like me, rejected that. I'm not, I'm not following him. I'm going to just live in the world. I'm going to take the world stuff. And the Bible calls that sin. And that's why we're cut off from God. But God in his grace 
is the God of second chances. And he sent his son then to die in your place so that you may go free. Folks, I want to encourage you then. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour and you will know this love that I'm talking about. Make him the king of your life. Paul says to the Romans, he says, you know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king, and you believe in your heart that he rose again, that he died for you and rose again, then you will be saved. Jesus came to make that doorway for you, back into the garden, back into a relationship with God, back into finding your identity and security and joy in God, which you were always made for. I put before you then this day life and death. Sovereign grace and yes, choose life. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour and know this life. If you are a believer though, which is most of us in the room, here's what I want you to know. Individually. God personally and passionately and particularly loves you too. And here's how I know. I know because in your place, condemned he stood. Insert your name in Wayne's place, condemned he stood. In Paris's place, condemned he stood. In Janelle's place, condemned he stood. That's how I know this personal, passionate and particular love. He stood in your place as your Passover lamb, the one that was needed for you. He stood in your place as the second Adam, taking all your sin and renewing it through his sinlessness and taking your place. And he stood in your place as the rightful king because he loves you. Hear then his love. Behold it. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Gaze at it. Because what a saviour we have. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather and have gathered around this scene, it is obvious, even in a 40-minute overview, that there is so much truth and glory and amazement in this scene. Our Father, thank you then for opening our eyes. Thank you for helping us behold just the glories of all that your Son has done in our place. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us then, would we know and experience that love for us? Would we not be left guessing, wondering how you feel about us? But as we gaze truth, for you are truth, as we gaze truth, would we be amazed at your love? What a saviour. Amen.